If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 28. As we go through the book of 1 Samuel, we have a parenthetical chapter, which means, you know, kind of meanwhile back at the ranch when we get back to it. But right now we have uh, Saul just before his last day of life on earth. He's just a, a hot mess. And so the title of the message is Witches and Stuff. And so we're going to see the witch at Endor today and just what that's all about. But there's so much other stuff in there. I didn't know what to call it because you got the idea of mediums and spiritists and seances and just all of this crazy stuff in the chapter. And so it's a neat little chapter, uh, much for us to learn. I will give you a warning. And the warning is uh, be gentle with me as I teach through the chapter. It's one of those things that there's so much to pull out from this section of scripture. Um, but we need to learn to navigate individually through the scripture so that we can form our own personal convictions on a lot of this stuff. And so as we go through it, I'll just we'll teach, but and then we'll kind of try to apply as best as I can, at least, uh, of what's going on here. So let's pray and ask God to go before his word, 1 Samuel 28, witches and stuff. Father, we ask your blessing upon your word. We thank you so much that, uh, Lord, these things are included in the scriptures and they come from just a, a human perspective where we can look into what's going on, the, the, the depth of this spiritual realm and why you warn and why you caution us against certain things. And so, Father, we thank you so much that we can study the word and we can grow in the grace and knowledge of your word and may we just continue to desire and hunger and thirst for things spiritual in the right way as we look to you. And so bless this time as we offer it up to you and give us eyes to see and ears to hear what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. amen. So last time we <clears throat> left David... Um, he's coming back to God, and we're going to see uh, just this struggle and dynamic with David. But we're going to leave David for a moment, and we're going to come back to Saul. Saul has been rejected from God in that there was a partial obedience. God had commanded him to go and to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And there was a partial obedience on his part. God gave him chance after chance after chance to be able to repent and get it right. But we see this self-willed man. We see this individual that places his will above God's. And so he sits on the throne of his own heart. And he cares more about what people think than what God knows and so we just see him struggle to the extent that he tries to kill David. And whether that's through jealousy or just this spirit that comes upon him, this demonic spirit, um, it's just a bad thing. And over and over, he's just rejecting God and pushing him out of his life. And we get to this place, Samuel has already died, but it's going to bring that back to kind of show us how desperate Saul is at this stage and remember he is going to be dying tomorrow as it relates to this day this chapter here and so just an interesting dynamic let's go and pick it up at verse 3 last time we were together we covered verses 1 and 2 we actually went over chapter 27 all of chapter 29 verses 1 and 2 in 28 so we pick it up at verse 3 in 1 Samuel chapter 28 the Bible says now Samuel had died and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. 
The reason it's telling us that Samuel had died was because Saul is desperate for a prophet. And Samuel would be the one that would introduce Saul as king to the nation of Israel. He would be the one that would anoint him. And he would be the one that he can actually go to on occasion. And so Saul finds himself in a desperate situation where he has nowhere to go and no one to go to. The current prophet in the nation of Israel doesn't receive him, does not speak to him. He goes to the Urim and the Thummim, and he goes to dreams, and nothing is working. God is silent. And so in this, there's a desperation. And with Saul, who has already rejected God, um, it's not 100% bad. Notice, and Saul had put away the mediums and the spiritists out of the lands, Even individuals that are far away from God can do good things. He is the most powerful man in the nation of Israel at this time, right, as king. And he knows what God has said before, that when you come into the land, don't don't take on the customs of the individuals that are in that land. In fact, you need to remove these spiritual things that are really tapping into a dark realm, a demonic and satanic realm. I'll read it to you. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 18, and I'm going to read you verses 9 through 14. You could follow along, or you could just kind of watch up here. Why are we blurred? Is that my fault? That's crazy. Okay, well, I'll read it to you. It's Deuteronomy chapter 18, starting at verse 9. But through the law, God is encouraging. When you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices witchcraft, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord, and because of these abominations the Lord your God drives them out from before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. So today, things as, such things as tarot cards or palm readers or horoscopes or Ouija boards are modern attempts to practice forms of spiritism. And it's not like God is like, like scared of the competition or, or jealous in a sense that he thinks, well, you're going you're gonna to like what they tell you more than you're going to like what he tells you. Satan is a liar. And so he knows that Satan's objective for you and for me is, is to lead us down a path by our nose and to ultimately lead us astray with his lies. And so he's looking out for us, actually, by telling us these things. He's, he's letting us know, why would you go to a source that's a lie when you can come to the source that's the truth? I love you, and you might not like what I have to tell you, but it's going to be the truth, and it's the best for you. Now, and ultimately, inevitably, it will work out as you obey what I'm asking you to do, or as you participate with me in where I'm taking you and leading you. And so, just an interesting dynamic where uh, Saul was able to remove these from the land, and now he's not hearing from God. And so in his desperation, verse 4, you see that he gets to a desperate place. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. 
So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Verse 6, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. And so it's unfortunate. Samuel has passed away. Saul can't go to him anymore. Then the Philistines encamp themselves against the nation of Israel. They want to destroy them. They want to battle. They want a war. And it says that his heart is greatly afraid. And through that, he tries to seek the Lord. The Lord doesn't speak to him. He goes to the Urim and the Thummim, lights and wonders, right? Just imagine it just kind of like, uh, I guess like a magic eight ball, huh? You kind of just do the magic. Will the Philistines kick my butt? The answer is yes. You know, or whatever, something like that, okay? So they were able to divine through that. They were able to see and discern what God was wanting for them. None of this is taking place. There's no dreams. There's nothing. And as you think about it, man, that's a scary place to be, right? God, where are you? I want to seek you. I want to, I, want, I want to hear from you. I want you to talk to me. I want you to speak truth into my life. And so that's a very, very difficult place to be in. But God knows Saul's heart. And, and you'll see even through this chapter, Saul is about one thing. Saul is about Saul. Saul cares more about Saul than he cares about anything else. Saul has taken God off of the throne of his heart and he's placed himself right there. And so in this chapter, Saul is Saul's God. Go to your God. Go to your idol. Go to the thing that you worship, God could be saying. Don't come to me because you don't worship me. You don't look to me. You don't want my guidance and my direction. You want your, my help to get you out of this fix. And so Saul is seeking God even here for all of the wrong reasons. Verse 5, when Saul saw that the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, oh, I read that, the prophets. Verse 7, then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. And so this is known as the witch at Endor. It may be appropriate to call her a witch, but it is more accurate to call her a medium or a necromancer, one who makes contact with the dead. The Hebrew word for medium is O-W-B, aub. And it has the idea of mumbling or speaking with a strange hollow sound, as if one were channeling with a dead person speaking through them. The Hebrew word has in mind the sound the channel makes as they speak. The English word medium has in mind the concept of a channel. They stand in between the world, and the, li- of the, world of the living and the dead and communicate between the two worlds. Now, all this is is a big, fat, lying sign and wonder from Satan. But what God's going to do is probably something that God's never done, and then he's never going to repeat it again, or at least I've never heard of it. But he's going to actually let this medium call up Samuel from the dead. Never has that been recorded in scriptures. And even the medium is going to be freaked out by the fact that, whoa, Mama Lagucha, what's going on here? You know? She's like, oh, this ain't never happened. This is something different. And so it's just an interesting dynamic of what's taking place here. But God is going to allow it for his purposes, 
for his plans. And then again, we can learn just as we kind of get to read through this. Verse 8 says, So Saul disguised himself and put on clothes, and he went, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. And he said, Please conduct a seance for me, and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, Look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. And so you you hear Saul speaking Christianese. As the Lord lives, nothing's going to happen to you. And he's trying to seek God. But the heart of Saul is nothing but desiring to be obedient to God. He has no desire to move in the direction of God. It's all, again, for personal, selfish reasons that all of this is taking place in his life. Verse 11, then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? Notice it's always a bringing up. And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. Now something is going on different. This woman has never experienced this. And she knows that, whoa, whoa, this isn't usually how this takes place. And, and I don't know how it usually takes place. Like, how does this work? I would imagine that there's in this demonic, satanic realm, and a person that is conjuring up a person isn't conjuring up a person. Because that person is in either Abraham's bosom, as we read in Luke chapter 16, or in the place of Hades, the place of torment, waiting to be able to go to the ultimate judgment, the great white throne judgment, and ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. But right here, there is that, that holding place. Luke 16, the, the scriptures that we read in our time of responsive reading, teaches that before, when somebody would die in faith in the Old Testament, they would go, if they were faithful, they, they, were, they were in the faith, they were looking forward to the Messiah, to the cross, they would go to Abraham's bosom, a place of comfort, a, a place of waiting for Jesus to come and ultimately ascend into heaven after the crucifixion. And so it says in Ephesians chapter 4 that before he ascended into heaven, he descended into the lower parts of the earth and he set captives free. And so it is understood that those who died in faith went to Abraham's bosom. But in between, there's this gulf fixed as Lazarus is, or the rich man is able to see Lazarus being comforted while he's in torment. And so the way it was always uh, explained to me was, it's kind of like this place of torment was like, kind of like county jail before you get sentenced and go to prison and have to endure you know, the real hard time. Well, the real hard time prison is the lake of fire, the ultimate place of, of judgment, what we consider hell, if you will. But this Hades, this Sheol, this place of the grave, this place of torment waiting to get there, is real nonetheless. And so I would imagine that in the past, this medium would be a channeler of dead people, but is she talking to the dead person? No. Talking to some demon who has information that demons are able to see and be aware of, right? And so, you know, call my grandma Betsy up and, 
Okay, I, I, I see this is your grandma Betsy, and wow, she has a, a scar on her left thigh in the shape of a heart. Oh my gosh, that's my, that's my grandma. Wow, this is so beautiful. No, how did a demon not know that? Demon saw in the shower what was taking place and all this, right? Lying signs and wonders. Satan does have power. God is never saying in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Leviticus, when he forbids this behavior, he's never saying that Satan doesn't have power, that Satan doesn't know things. A loving father, a heavenly father, he's saying, guys, why would you go to deception? Why would you go to a place where Satan just wants to ultimately destroy you, to take from you, to rob, to kill and to destroy when you can come to me, the source of light, the source of truth. And so we're warned against these things. Verse 13, and the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man coming up, and he is covered with a mantle and so his robe. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel. And he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. I don't, I don't understand Saul's behavior. I don't know if he's bowing down because he's thanking God that God allowed Samuel to come back. And he thinks that Samuel is going to give him a good report. But Samuel is going to repeat exactly what took place in 1 Samuel chapter 15 when he disobeyed God and he rejected God. God in turn rejected him. He showed through his actions that he didn't want God. On God's terms. He wanted to create a God of his own choosing, as the world is doing today. We pick and choose the aspects of God and theology and the things that we want to understand and the things that we're comfortable with, but we reject other things that maybe we're not so comfortable with. And so Saul ended up doing that, and he's thinking, he's bowing down. I don't know if he's bowing down to Samuel. I don't know if he, again, he's bowing down to God to thank him. Verse 15, now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? There I was in Abraham's bosom. There I was in a place of comfort. There I was experiencing this wonderful thing, awaiting for the Messiah to come and, you know, descend to have me ascend with him. And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed. For the Philistines make war against me, and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. What I should do for the nation of Israel? No. What I should do for the betterment of everyone else? What I should do for David, who I'm trying to kill? No. He's scared. What is he going to look like? It's all self Centered. Then Samuel said, verse 16, So why do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you and has become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. 
And so horrible news compounded upon horrible news. When Samuel tells Saul that you'll be with me, he's not saying, you're going to be with me in this place of comfort. You're going to be with me in death, you and your two sons. Jonathan, for sure, will be in the place of comfort. As for you, Saul, you're going to be with me in the place of death. Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day or all night. And the woman came to Saul and said that he was severely troubled and said to him, Look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice, and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Now therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him And he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. So they would be there full day. They went at night. They go through the whole night just doing all of this stuff that's taking place. Saul is having his little pity party, his little tantrum and so selfish in his actions, and he finally gets to eat something, and then they're going to go, go on their way um, the next night. So as we look at this, we need to navigate between, differentiating between that which is sinful in this world and that which the Lord will give us a personal conviction of. And so take into account what's taking place here. There are things that we as Christians have no business dabbling in or with. There's a realm out there that we need to steer clear from. Satan's objective in any community, in any culture, is to erase the lines of right and wrong and push them in a direction where, before you know it, you wonder, how did we get here? I use the acronym CAN, C-A-N. Anything within a culture that is common is soon accepted by that culture. Anything that is common and accepted soon becomes the norm or that which is normal within that culture. So you have common, accepted, and normal. Back in the 50s when Elvis came out, he was going to be on the Ed Sullivan show. And because he gyrated his hips a certain way, the broadcaster said, no, that's too sexual. There's no way that we can put that on television. So we will record from basically the bottom of his chest up because that would be far too sexual to put on television. Boy, have we come a long way from Elvis shaking his hips. I Love Lucy, a married couple on television, wouldn't even sleep in the same bed as to give an appearance of a sexual relationship. God forbid married people have sex. But back then... They didn't want certain things put out, if you will. So they had, what, two twin beds. And they were separated by the lampstand and the coffee table or whatever, right? And they would sleep in their separate beds. And again, have we not come a far way from that on television and movies and the music and the music videos 
that are portrayed today. And so the lines of right and wrong and that which is acceptable within a culture are erased constantly and moved and erased and moved and erased and moved to the, to the extent that you come across at times being prudish. You're such a fanatic. Oh my gosh. You don't even watch those movies. What's wrong with you? Right? But you have a standard. And you can't put that standard on others. You, you have to take your personal convictions, those things that God knows will stumble you, those things that God knows will hurt you or harm you or lead you in a direction astray off of his path, away from where he's trying to take you. And you need to know that foundationally God loves you and that God has a plan for you. Satan as well has a plan for you. And so as we navigate through what it is we do, I'm not talking about sinful practices. I'm not talking about things that the Bible delineates as sinful. Those things are no-brainers. We have no business dabbling in a demonic realm as a Christian. Seeking out a medium or a spiritist or necromancy or all of these things. Let me give you some definitions. Seance is a meeting at which people attempt to make contact with the dead, especially through the agency of a medium. Christians have no business in seances. Why do we want to talk to lying spirits? Why would we even think of something like that? Necromancy, the supposed practice of communicating with the dead, especially in order to predict the future. Sorcery, the supposed practice of communicating with the dead, especially in order to predict the future. I just, oh, that's sorcery. Witchcraft, the practice of magic, especially black magic, the use of spells and invocations. And here's the deceptive lie of Satan. Did you know that the overwhelming people that are practicing these things think that they're lining up with God because they're in touch and in tapped with the spiritual realm? And they differentiate between what? White magic and black magic. Oh, black magic's bad. That's, that's not us from... That's satanic. That's demonic. White magic. No, there's only one good spirit. The Holy Spirit. All the other spirits out there that they're tapping into are demonic spirits that will lie. I remember listening to this guy's testimony, and there was this spirit that named himself Jesus. This demonic spirit. So every time the person would say, what's your name? They would say, my name is Jesus. A demonic spirit. No rules in that realm. There's no guidelines like, you're going to play fair, Satan? Are you going to play by the rules? You're not allowed to do certain things. He doesn't play by the rules. He doesn't play fair. He's deceptive. Darkness masquerading as light. Angel of light, it's called, right? Deceived Eve. And so in these things, you have ideas of Halloween and where, 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 Uh uh-oh, I'm a Christian and where's the line and if I let my kids dress up and all of these different things, television shows and movies like Bewitched and Sabrina the Teenage Witch, Charm, the Wizard of Oz, Hocus Pocus, The Craft, The Exorcist. And we look at these different things and, whoa, 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 I don't know how to navigate through this. And I think we got to be careful in some of these things, but... I also think in a, big, in a very big way that we need to be careful to put our convictions upon everybody else and to say that that which you are convicted of is the whole realm of Christianity needs to be convicted of. And I think sometimes we can just buy into it all, hook, line, and sinker, and we make 
Christianity to be this legalistic baggage and this bondage that Paul would admit, guys, we couldn't even keep the law. And we begin to set up relating to God through rules and regulations, and that's religion. And before you know it, it's dead and it's empty and there's nothing of substance to be said about it. But yet we know that we have to guard our hearts, don't we? We have to be careful because Satan is subtle and he wants to lead us astray. So in all of this, for me, what I find is my convictions are personal. God knows me. God knows how I'm wired. He knows where my weaknesses are. He even knows where the enemy wants to lead me astray. And it's to those convictions that I need to personally take them in and then lead my family in that realm and in that direction. But I need to be careful not to put that on everybody else. Whether that's you putting it on everybody else or me as a pastor putting it on everybody else. I need to let people work out their own salvation with fear and trembling, as the Bible says. And if somebody asks, hey, what do you think about this? I was thinking about going over here. I was thinking about doing this thing. Then, you know, we can share. The Bible says give to every man an answer who asks of the hope that is within you. And so, again, I was listening this week to a Calvary Chapel senior pastor, one of our big Calvaries, very respected man, and I listen to him regularly. I love him. And he did a 15-minute podcast on alcohol and the dangers of alcohol, the horrors of alcohol, the destruction of alcohol. And I agreed with about 95% of what he had to say. And it was that 5% that I said, why did you go there? But he tried to make an argument that the Bible teaches that it is sin for every Christian at any time to ever drink alcohol. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that it's a sin to be drunk. And I don't think it's a good idea to drink. But I can't say that the Bible teaches that it's sin to drink. And and I think when we have this position where God gives us a pulpit and puts a microphone in front of our face and then we think that we are going to create disciples in the name of this disciple. That's going to be a horrible disciple. We are all Jesus' disciples and our discipleship training should come from the truth and let God be true and every man a liar. And so I think we need to be careful when we put that upon people. When the Bible speaks of an individual that has scruples, an individual that has these convictions against or for certain or specific things, those things are personal. Be thankful to God for them. Be thankful to God that he gives you convictions about or against certain things. And live them. God loves you. God has an incredible plan. But be careful when you begin to look down your nose at other individuals that are living their lives in the freedom that they have to live it out in Christ. And all we do is we become a bunch of Pharisees, a bunch of hypocrites, pretending that we don't have struggles, acting like we've got it all figured out when we really, really don't. And so give people, extend people the grace that God extends to you, the dignity and the respect that God gives to you. 
in being able to navigate through your life. And if the Lord gives you a conviction and you disobey it and then it works out really bad, you can sit there and say, wow, God, you really, whew, you, you were right on this one, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm right on all of them. But God knows you and God lovingly wants to lead you. I will give you two sets of verses, Romans 15, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. Notice he calls the individual that has these convictions and scruples weak. And not to please ourselves, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. And so for those of us who have the freedom to be able to do with this life what we believe God has allowing us to do, be careful that you don't vaunt that or, or, or parade that in front of a weak brother or sister that would stumble them. That's the law of love that God in the Bible is calling us to. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, But beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. We have the freedom in Christ, incredible freedom, to live our lives, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. And so God forbid that we put, again, those convictions about certain things that are not necessarily black and white. To put that on others and to even think less of them. Because they don't live in this holiness that we live in. Do do you realize that when you have the scruple, you're weak? I'm weak. I don't... I don't not drink alcohol because I'm strong. I don't drink alcohol because I'm weak. And so a stronger brother or sister would be pounding them down. <laughs> You're such a weak. You know? And what if that stumbles me? What if that caused me? Yeah, well, brother so-and-so is doing it. So those are good reasons that we need to be careful of, uh, that we need to watch out for. But be careful to, again... Put that on others, whatever your convictions are, whatever your things are. Black and white issues are black and white issues. We have no business tapping into a spiritual realm that we need to be careful. But if you want to dress your kids for Halloween and go trick-or-treating and have them get candy and little things like that, man, from a kid's perspective, that's a fun day. Just straight up, that's a fun day. I get to put a costume on, and I'm going to knock on my neighbors that we don't even know. And they're going to hand me candy because I'm going to say something. That's a good day for a kid. And in its purest form, in the purest sense of it, Pastor Chuck Smith said that he didn't have a Christmas tree in his house. Not because he thought Christmas trees were sinful, but because he knew some people stumbled at the idea of having a Christmas tree. I mean, where have we come to? Where have we come to that everybody's constantly judging what somebody else is doing? Live your life. And on black and white issues, go ahead and, yeah, don't sin. And move towards God. But if he's giving you a conviction about something, obey the conviction. God loves you. He knows what you need. He knows what you need to steer clear of. You don't need to put that on everybody. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ We thank you that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of works, not of ourselves, lest anyone should boast. And so, Lord, as you grow us up in the things of God, as we mature as Christians, I pray, Father, that we would just 
enjoy the incredible freedom that you have given us through your truth. The truth will set us free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. So I pray that we would walk in that freedom and that we would experience life, Lord, to the fullest and that we would be careful not to get bound by legalism and these things that asceticism, the outward appearance of things. So help us, Lord. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Continue to grow us up in Jesus' name. Amen.